As always, I am your host, Finn J.D. John, and today is Monday, and that means that instead of reading you an episode of the Offbeat Oregon History newspaper column, I'm going to be sharing a specially selected piece of our state's storytelling history. This is a new thing I'm doing. Actually, right now, I'm recording the first one of these. But don't worry, just on Mondays. What I'm reading today is the transcript of one of the interviews done by the writers of the Federal Writers Project of the WPA, Works Progress Administration, in its Oregon Folklore Studies series, which was conducted during the Great Depression almost a hundred years ago. These are basically oral histories. Some of them, over the years, have been the sources for full offbeat Oregon stories. Now, this particular one was found, rather than recorded, by WPA writer Sarah B. Wren, in 1938. I say found because, unlike most of these, this wasn't Ms. Wren interviewing the person. Nope, this was the story of Mrs. E.W. Wilson, a woman who came to Oregon to teach elementary school in 1851, before Oregon was a state. The oral history was collected and furnished to Ms. Wren by Mrs. Wilson's daughter, Mrs. J.T. Peters. This was originally transcribed on December 7, 1899. Just a little more information to put uh, Mrs. Wilson into context. She was born Elizabeth Millar in New York State on June 8, 1830. And at the ripe old age of 20 or 21 or something like that, she was selected as one of a cohort of about 600 Eastern, as they called them, school marms sent to frontier communities in the West um, through the National Board of Popular Education. This program ran between 1847 and 1858, and uh, Mrs. Wilson arrived in 1851, or Miss Millar, as she was then known. Candidates for this program were chosen on the basis of intelligence and evangelical religious commitment, and they promised in return for their training they would get um, two years of frontier teaching and also, quote, useful moral influence out of them. Elizabeth Millar put down roots in Oregon, Uh, married a man named Joseph Gardner Wilson. Mr. Wilson, by the way, would go on to be a U.S. congressman, moved to the Oregon Territory one year after Elizabeth did, practiced law in Salem, and became clerk of the territorial legislature and also prosecuting attorney of Marion County from 1860 to 1862, was later an associate judge of the state Supreme Court. He served as a United States congressman from 1873 until his death. His wife, Elizabeth Wilson, became postmistress at the Dalles and served in that capacity from 1874 to 1886. She was one of the very first women ever appointed to a federal position, in Oregon at least. At the time of this interview, she would have been 69 or 70 years old. She would live for an additional 13 years, dying on um, February 27, 1913. Well, let's get to it. Reminiscences of Mrs. E. W. Wilson, an Oregon schoolteacher of 1851, covering her arrival in the Oregon country and her early months of teaching. Transcribed at The Dalles, December 7, 1899, and loaned to the Federal Writers Project by her daughter, Mrs. Joseph T. Peters. Complete copy submitted to the Historical Records Survey. 
obtained by Sarah B. Wren for the Oregon Folklore Studies. The trip was quite favorable. Our entrance over the bar was a prosperous one. We landed at Astoria, saw General Adair, who had first come there as a collector of customs, and his family. Then, shifting our belongings to the newly built steamer Lot Whitcomb, we made our way up the river. The impression on my memory is more of homesickness than of the majesty and beauty of the Lord Lee River. There were but very few woodsmen's huts on the banks between Astoria and Vancouver, and the less said of any thoughts or feelings the better, but the dread end of the journey was becoming heavier and heavier as it approached. I was exceedingly worried about my purse. Neither Frank nor I had a dime, and it was not in me to throw off all anxieties as to the very near future. A little diversion was very agreeably given at Vancouver, then occupied by the Rifle Regiment under Colonel Loring, afterward of the Egyptian service called Loring Bay. Mrs. Preston had a cousin among the officers, and we were taken to the Commandant's quarters, but, though we were kindly invited to stay longer and everything looked beautiful there, the Lot Whitcomb was ready, and we must go. The Hudson Bay Company's buildings and stockades were then all complete and full of interest. We were soon at Portland and walked from the steamer's gangplank through a double line of gazers composed of the entire population of Portland. No arrival had yet taken place of so many women. The one-sided community was exceedingly interested. I suppose the rest of the party were allowed to be and look just as they pleased without criticism, but the teachers who had been sent for and who had accepted the invitation were the objects of many remarks. We heard of these afterward. They seemed to think we had too much experience among us, and some seemed to think that the limit should have been set that none should have been accepted who were out of their teens. Again on the river, this time in a whale boat, expecting to reach Oregon City, the then capital, and our destination at 4 p.m. I had a heavy blanket shawl. The sun was very warm, and seeing my trunk, unlocked it and put the shawl away. We approached the Clackamas, but much later than had been planned, and found ourselves fast on the bar. I do not remember much of the efforts to dislodge the boat. The boatmen were under the influence of whiskey, and when the lights of Oregon City shone out brightly, we, in full view, lay there all night supperless. I had no wrap. Some blankets were divided among the ladies. The men had reached the shore and started a monstrous fire, which dissipated the gloom a little bit, but not the chill. The blanket did not reach me, and I became very ill. Youth and a strong constitution carried me through, but my trip was very nearly ended that night for all time. I never felt worse in my life. Now we can look back and see some of the dangers that were incurred by some of our party who could not content themselves to lie there, or rather stalk about in the wet woods, for a cold rain set in with nightfall while the lights of Oregon City were within full view. Several of them started. There was only a trail. They groped their way to the Clackamas, where they found a canoe. Wholly unused to such a boat, they, not by their own skill or wisdom, got across without capsizing. There were then only blind trails, cow paths, impassable gullies, piles of burnt logs crossing the ways in all directions, but in the rain and darkness in five hours they finally reached the streets of Oregon City, gave the news of Mr. Thurston's death and the fact that we were stuck on the rapids, and then, we may suppose, tumbled into bed. Early next morning, measures were taken for our relief. A collection was taken and eatables sent down in a small boat. There seemed to be a great quantity of mince pie, and a very good breakfast, that is, for supperless people. 
I was too ill to eat, but there was cheer in the thought that someone cared for us. We, as soon as possible, started on the path to the city. The sun was bright, the clouds gone, and the trail was easily followed. With my after-experience, I often wondered that we all were safely canoed over that whirling torrent with inexperienced boatmen, but we found ourselves trudging along. My personal difficulties you can fancy if you have ever had cholera morbus and attempt to keep up with a line of march. To be left behind was impossible, but the attack was nearly over. On a bridge a little north of the congregational church we met Dr., then Mr. Atkinson. He was a fine-looking man, really quite young, thirty-two, but I had a way then of thinking everybody old who was out of boyhood. He was from Vermont, and naturally, I am sure, of a grave and serious temperament. This seemed to be increased by what he thought the necessities of the case. There certainly was no warmth or effusion in his greeting, and one of us then needed a little as a medicine. He said in the stiffest manner, "'Will you walk over to my house?' The alternative might have been to say, No, thank you. We will take seats on this log. Remember where my purse was and how vagabondish I felt. But we went with him. A little fresh homesickness at parting with the friends who had been such true friends in a time of need. They all went to the Main Street house kept by S. Moss. Mr. Atkinson's house was a small, neat building. An improvement in the mental thermometer was visible as soon as we entered. The exquisite neatness and homelikeness of everything, and a dainty dinner which soon followed our arrival, did much to put us at peace with the world. In the afternoon many ladies called, and the band of teachers separated, I believe only a few times ever to meet again. I went with Miss Smith to the house of Judge Thornton, where I immediately began to repair damages of the long voyage and the illness. A sad duty was before us of meeting Mrs. Thurston— Mr. Asahel Bush, a personal and political friend of Mr. T., crossed the river and climbed the hill to her little cottage. She had just laid her baby, Blandina, now Mrs. Stowell, in the crib, saying as she did so, I think it will be your father who will waken you. It was an awful blow, but she was a woman of extraordinary poise of character, and the way she conducted herself in this sorrow has been a lifelong lesson to me. We told her what we had to tell her, little enough, she had to bestir herself as soon as possible for the support of her family. At first, keeping house for her brother, Frank McLeach, on a farm in Spring Valley, Polk County. Afterward, teaching in the Wallamette Institute, now university, for several years. Editor's note, that would be, of course, Willamette University in Salem. She spells it in the transcript the old-fashioned way, Wallamette. Back to the story. She afterward married Mr. W. K. O'Dell and lived on a farm near Lafayette. Some mileage that had accrued to Mr. T. under the then rulings was paid to her, and she was comfortable. But we go back. My brother remained in Portland, getting a situation immediately. This relieved the situation by half. For the rest, I needed no money, not even for a shoestring. I shall always remember the story of the preacher who borrowed a five-dollar bill from one of his people Saturday night and returned it Monday morning because he said he could preach better with it. It was hard for me to keep the appearance of good feeling in receiving and making visits. We were invited to many houses. Governor Gaines' wife made a tea or dinner for us, and it began to look as if even in these wilds there might be some hope for friends that might someday be valued. All this time I was mentally repeating to myself, I have not a dollar. Remember, I did not have any use for one. Every possible want for years to come had been provided for, but still I would badger my brains about 
possible complications when I might be sadly mortified. Now I can see that it was all fright. My outfit was arranged for a country where we supposed there was nothing to buy. That was a mistake. Shiploads of goods were being sent round the horn, even faster than the soon and rapidly increasing needs of the country required. During this impecunious state of affairs, I was invited to spend a few days with one of the oldest settlers. The head of the house, who had to make an early start the following morning, said, I'd give a dollar if I could find a bright fire at five o'clock tomorrow. Thinks I to myself, you shall. I do not know if I thought of the promise then or took it as in earnest. It was natural to do such a thing for a very busy and often tired man, but he took it in earnest and with a moment's wonderment at the fire and the steaming kettle laid a dollar on the table. Then I was indeed a capitalist and had a dollar more than I had any use for. The same day my brother sent me five dollars from Portland and all was serene as far as money went. Immense quantities of wild strawberries were in the streets for sale by Indians. I had bought some sugar and berries and hunted long for something to put them in. Mr. Moss of the Main Street House heard of my vain efforts among the stores and presented me with four empty Chinese ginger jars, two of which are now on my pantry shelves. These I filled, sealed, and directed to mother. The family arrived six weeks later and after I had gone to my work in Forest Grove. An Indian who could speak a little English carried the four jars to the little house where the family went to housekeeping on their arrival while waiting for their goods which were sent round the horn. Mother refused to receive them, saying there was a mistake. She had not ordered them, but the boy insisted, and she presently recognized the penmanship that made a sort of pleasant welcome for her and could not have happened if I had not come on in advance. The four weeks of my stay were very pleasant, full of kindness from those who were settled in then a little advance of us. An interesting chapter might be written on one phase of the new country as it appeared to a young lady. On this part of humanity there were so few that, speaking after the manner of chemists, one might say scarcely a trace. The provisions in the Donation Land Act had stimulated the natural tendency to early marriage, always found in a new country. It was incredible to the community that anyone should willfully reject 320 acres of such land as then went begging in Oregon with a wedding thrown in. But in addition to this, the non-agricultural past of the settlers— those who had come in the desire of commerce or trade had been long deprived of the customs of their age and social standing. The incidents illustrating this were many and peculiar, but this chapter will hold over. The first week in June, under the escort of Deacon Naylor and Reverend H. Clark, accompanied by Mrs. Thornton, we mounted our nags and took our way over the hills back of Oregon City en route to Forest Grove, where I was engaged to teach. I was not in a state of mind any longer to have misgivings or fears or presentiments, just to get on somehow from minute to minute. Much was said about the excellence of my mount. Deacon Naylor had borrowed him especially for the new teacher's use. I cannot conceive what it would have been had any common horse been put to my services. I had never ridden except that mule ride across the Isthmus. Editor's note, that means the Isthmus of Panama. Mrs. Wilson, you'll remember, came by sea, not over the Oregon Trail. Back to the story. Was large, was soft, muscles all unused to such violent exercise. The sun was extremely fierce. I had been recently very ill and was in no condition for a thirty-mile ride on the best beast ever under a saddle. There was no comparison between the pains of this ride and that on the little mules. Mules forever for me. The first ten miles were endured. The next ten were torture. 
The last ten I have no words to write about. I thought the men cruel as Indians. Just imagine anyone thinking that of those two good, tender-hearted men because they would not let me drop off my horse and lie by the roadside. I wanted to die. Meeting some Indians in their usual string, instead of being afraid, I should have been glad to know that they were going to shoot me. The wise men in charge would not let me dismount, even when I gave my word I would walk on and not lie down, but kept me right straight to the end. Perfectly regardless of first impressions, I went in at a door, staggered to a trundle bed, and lay there like a log, refusing supper. I do not remember speaking at all. The only thing I knew how to do was keep my mouth tight shut. If I spoke, it would be, as the psalmist said, unadvisedly. I never became a good rider, but use made the exercise possible. After the family came, I went to Oregon City to see them. The dear old faces of the old home were delightful to see. I had no word from the time of leaving for New York except that Governor Abernethy had called at Judge Thornton's to tell me that some gentlemen who had made a quicker passage than my father hadn't seen them and wanted me to know that he, my mother, and sister were all well. My sister? I had left too, but that was all the information he could give. However, when we met, all were there, and none lost by the way. This was a delightful break in the homesick days. The two little rooms with mother over them looked like home, and bread and biscuit. None like hers had touched my lips since the doors of the South Argyle home were closed. I enjoyed them utterly, but Monday saw me again mounted for the ride. The previous Friday I had broken the distance by going twelve miles to about the present site of Reedsville, which helped out very greatly. I went back once more before they left for the upper country of the Wallamette, but was then taken ill so it was a week before it was possible to return to my work. Reverend Harvey Clark, always kind, always sacrificing himself for others, did my work in the schoolroom. I went back to my work, and they, aided by some good Lynn County friends, moved their goods which had come round the horn with Mr. Henry W. Corbett's stock of goods up to Albany. At Forest Grove there were many things to mitigate the loneliness of life. I did not think of them at their full value, though I seemed to enjoy them. Mr. Clark was a graduate of Oberlin, an agreeable and educated gentleman with a lovely wife who was always friendly and pleasant. These friends would have been valued anywhere and at all times. Besides, Mr. Clark had a present from Captain Crosby of a chaise, one horse, and he had a well-broken horse which he was willing, no matter how busy, to hitch up for my use. I drove hundreds of miles over those prairies up mountain wood roads, often with Mrs. Clark and sometimes with one of the older schoolgirls. A good horse, a comfortable chaise, I have never seen a finer vehicle. It is an ideal way of getting over the country. One has the comfort of a barouche and the independence almost of being on horseback. I loved much to ride alone, too, and there were few places to which my trusty horse, Lucas, could not pull the two wheels which carried my chariot. Once I followed the Tualatin on a road where many wheels had gone, but no sign of a settlement on either side. The mystery was explained by coming to a sawmill, evidently running, but with no man to run it. I drove up among the piles of lumber. It looked amid the embowering woods and vines like a fairy place, and for a time it seemed as if fairies only ran the machinery. For a place newly opened in the woods, my vehicle could get on very well, and I drove around this mystery to explore. Presently, from behind a pile of lumber, a face looked up and a mouth spoke. 
I did not ask him, why are you not attending to the setting of the saw, which was running up and down in the air, sawing nothing, but I made up some questions about the roads. Could I go further into the woods and any way from there? No, that was the end of the world, it appeared. There was nothing to do but retrace my steps. As I turned round, several more faces appeared from the corner. As I turned around, several more faces appeared from hidden corners. The next Saturday, as these millers came down to the store for supplies, the account of my unexpected visit was hilariously recited with much frontier exaggeration. They said they had clubbed their resources to provide a stunning suit in which, one wearing it at a time, they would come to town, go to church, and see the new stranger. But before this could be accomplished, I had made them a visit on their own premises— Every one of these men must have met your father in after years and told him perhaps more than once so many times he came home from the circuit and would tell me he had seen another one of those sawmill men I went to visit. The story of the scantiness and raggedness of their apparel did not lose anything as the years went on. Another great comfort was the presence and counsel of Mrs. Tabitha Brown, a wise woman about seventy-five years of age. She was the widow of a clergyman who had taken her family to Missouri when land was cheap— it was cheap and good, but life was then and there almost impossible. I have never met her equal in some things. She broke her arm in crossing the plains. Without surgeons, she directed the unskilled help of some of her party in such a manner that the bone was set, bandaged with splints, and she was able to mount her horse and continue on her journey with no more delay than necessary to put her arm in good shape. Her leg or hip had been broken long before and badly set so that she was very lame. She had seen and read a great deal and remembered keenly the incidents of her life. She was of great use to me and my limited experience, always kind and helpful. A great trouble to me was my visitors. I never liked them in my teaching. They destroyed the power of the pupils to study and mine to do the best I could for them. I often read directions to parents to visit the schools. Well, for some this may do— once it was worse than common. A young man had ridden out from Portland and walked to the schoolhouse and come in to wait the hour of dismissal, and he could make his intended call. Some of the older girls began to giggle and look knowing. Others followed. I heard a whisper, "'Teacher's got a bow!' Uh, my cheeks burned, not at the alleged fact I was proof against that, but with mortification that I did not know how to meet the case.' That evening I told Mrs. Brown. She listened to my tale of woe and said I must give up teaching. Not having sense or dignity enough to control such outbreaks of the pupils, it was useless to go on. Her bright eyes snapped a little as she called the girls before her in such a lecture as they got. The result was I might afterwards have had a procession of callers without disturbing the studies of the scholars or the comfort of the teacher, but there were many lonesome evening hours. I often wandered over the prairie late at night to induce sleep. I was not timid and would keep on till we could hear cougars, or as they were called, panthers, screaming in the woods by my side. I kept in the open and was in no danger, yet even now there comes a sense of pity for the poor girl that I was. One evidence of the primitive life there was given the first Sunday of going to church. It was a very hot weather. There were no fans. Each lady had a twig from the bushes bent round, and both ends held in place in her hand like a silk handkerchief thrown over the hole. It made a very fine fan. This custom is spoken of in W. E. Barton's Hills of Kentucky. After Christmas, 1851, I went in on horseback through seas of mud to Portland. I spent some weeks visiting in Oregon City. There were some charming homes there. The families of different officials were lavish in entertainment. 
There was much simplicity still ruling, but it was a highly cultured simplicity, and it seemed to me of choice, not of necessity. We had parties enough to satisfy the most exacting lover of pleasure, and with the judgment of maturer years I can honestly say the pleasure was of the most wholesome kind. Dr. John McLaughlin's stately presence graced most of these entertainments, and nothing finer or more impressive could have been found on the round world. Then to Albany, where father had been building the house which was to be the home of our family as long as that family, as then constituted, would need a home. They were probably as glad to have me home as I was to be there. Father had been greatly delighted with the compactness and convenience of the Octagon House, as built by Fowler H. Wells on the banks of the Hudson and explained in a book published by them. Our experiment proved its correctness, but we also found out that compactness and convenience are not the only desirable things about a house. Abundance of carpets, books and bedding, pictures, etc., that had been sent round the horn to make us very homelike. Some chairs were also sent, called knockdowns. These would have been quite a success if they could have been properly set up. But something went wrong with the glue, and their frequent collapse under mortifying circumstances were part of the house's history. We were glad when a chance offered to buy some of the country chairs with seats of woven rawhide. These never collapsed under the most aggravating circumstances. Signed, Mrs. Elizabeth M. Wilson, December 24th, 1899. Well, that's the end of this oral history. It's a rather old one collected and curated and collated, although not originated, by workers of the Works Progress Administration, which, as you probably know, was a New Deal agency created by the government of Franklin Roosevelt during the 1930s to combat the Great Depression. The idea being, rather than lazily pumping money into the economy by bailing out failing banks and propping up failing businesses, to get something for it by putting the money in the hands of people who would spend every penny of it, patronizing those businesses and pumping up the economy. Whether that worked or not is for the political podcasters to wrangle about, but I don't mind telling you I approve of the philosophy, not least of all because it sure yielded some good Oregon history stuff. Stories that would have probably disappeared entirely if they hadn't done it. Like this one. There's a little bit more information in the file, which you can find online in PDF form from the Library of Congress. You will find that file at https slash slash www.loc.gov slash item slash WPALH 001971.